quite seriously. I, I probably learned as much from the guys as you know, as I try to you know, deliver to them. You talk about vulnerability. I can recall back right to the start of this. We kind of all exposed ourselves, said, okay, none of us know everything. Let's talk about scenarios. And we talked a lot and confidentially about scenarios that are happening in the guys' workplaces, all those kind of things. And I think the trust and respect grew over time and to where we are now. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis, and in today's episode, we're exploring the topic of building effective RTO employer partnerships. We have five vocational voices today. We have Michelle Tuchelli, Research and Data Analytics Branch, NCVER, Charmaine Marshall from Murrumbidgee Local Health District, New South Wales Government, Jeff Lynch, a trainer and assessor, Tina Bagella, a consultant with OGG Consulting, and Ange Dam, who is representing the voice of the learner in this process. Hello to all of you. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Morning. Now, effective partnerships between training providers and employers are important for ensuring a a robust vet sector. RTO employer partnerships, they act as channels through which industry skill needs are met with relevant training, while simultaneously building the capacity and the resilience of providers and employers alike. Well, based on a series of case studies of RTO employer partnerships covering a, a range of industry areas, geographical locations and employer sizes, a new NCVR good practice guide, Building Effective RTO Employer Partnerships, identifies the drivers for RTO employer partnerships, uh, the benefits and the challenges related to building and sustaining partnerships, along with strategies that foster the development of quality RTO employer partnerships. Now, before we look at those four key elements that, that lead to effective partnerships, I'd like to start by asking you, Michelle, uh, why was NCVR interested in undertaking this project? Yeah, really good starting point, Steve. Thanks. Um, our interest in how effective uh, or successful RTO employer partnerships are built and sustained was prompted by a few things. Now, firstly, we know the VET system or vocational education training system is a key supplier of work skills. But oftentimes um, we hear concerns raised about how well or well not the VET system is meeting the skills needed by industry. And here um, I refer, industry is referring to employers and unions and peak bodies. So at this um, broader political level, the Commonwealth and state and territory governments have a keen interest in how well industry engages with the VET system. Now, if industry is working closely with the VET system, It means current and future skilled needs are met. People are getting the right skills at the right time. Innovation and knowledge creation abounds, productivity increases, and there's this greater trust in our VET system that it can deliver the skills that are needed. So that's the bigger picture. But we're also prompted to look at RTO employer partnerships after reflecting on some of NCBR's own work. Um, For for example, the 2021 results from our biennial survey of employer use and views of the VET system. It highlights that the majority of employers are satisfied with the VET system as a way of meeting the skills they need. 
But for employers who were dissatisfied, among the key reasons were that relevant skills were not taught and that the training was of a poor quality. Other NCVR research has shown that employers want training that is short, sharp and bespoke. It has to be convenient, at a low cost and of immediate relevance to practical business issues, which all highlights the importance of training providers developing strong relationships with employers so as to better understand and meet their skill needs, which led us to the work we undertook and the conversation that we're going to have today. How do training providers actually go about engaging more effectively with employers so as to build these stronger, more collaborative relationships as a means to better meet employer skills needs? Michelle, are you able to just name and define these four key elements that underpin the the building and sustaining of effective partnerships? Yeah, sure, Steve. So through the research that um, we did, and and Tina was a core um, part of um, undertaking all of that research, um, there were, as you say, four elements we identified. And the first one um, we refer to as quality training and service delivery. And we see this as the foundation of a partnership. If you don't have that, it's, it's going to be really hard to build any partnership. And when we talk about quality here, we're referring to highly skilled trainers and assessors who are proficient in delivering training within the workplace. They have exceptional interpersonal skills, extensive industry knowledge, and they have the ability to understand and preempt the employer's needs. Being customer-focused is our second element. And so having established quality allows RTOs to be more customer-focused, to be more agile and flexible in their response to employers' needs. For example, looking for ways to create efficiencies in how training is delivered so as to minimise that disruption to normal workplace operations. Um, Offering tailor-made and customised training are other examples of being customer-focused. The third of our four elements is working together. So the customer-focused approach I just mentioned is enhanced by working together, having these strong communication uh, and collaborative relationships and a willingness to be learner-centric in the approach to training and assessment. And our fourth element is relationships. Now, this element is, you know, closely aligned with working together, but it's focused is on the longer term. It's about building the trust in each other, fostering strong and mutually beneficial connections, ongoing communication and achieving shared goals. And this aspect is really critical for sustaining partnerships. And I'd I'd just like to point out that while I've described these four elements separately, and great examples of each of these elements are highlighted across the case studies, uh, which we use to form the Good Practice Guide, It's important to understand that in the real-world context, um, there's a good degree of overlap between them, and they do often build upon each other. So, for example, um, through being customer-focused and delivering training on-site as a way to make that training explicitly relevant uh, while while also minimising that disruption to the workplace – That also provides trainers and assessors the opportunity to really actively engage and integrate themselves into the employer's work environment. And this can then foster meaningful interactions um, with the employees themselves as well as the employers. That cultivates those relationships. It facilitates that exchange of information and encourages ongoing collaboration, you know, that working together. Mm. And from this, a stronger and more longer-term sustained partnership may result. 
All right. Well, that set us up nicely. Thank you for that. Um, there, there are six case studies that form the foundation of this report and the good practice guide. And I'd like to focus on one of them in particular. It involves the partnership between the Management Edge and Murrumbidgee Local Health District uh, to provide nationally recognised leadership training to prepare Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers currently employed in clinical roles for higher level management roles. Now, Charmaine, you were on the employer side of this partnership. Uh, what prompted your organisation to go down this pathway and seek training? We, quite a few things actually, Steve, and like Michelle was alluding to before, we wanted some quality training delivery. We do leadership programs in-house now um, through our own leadership framework within New South Wales Health as a whole. However, we wanted to make it culturally safe and incorporate the eight ways of Aboriginal learning as well as go down the accredited training side. So we wanted to come from a bespoke point of view, an employer-led point of view. We wanted it to fit into our leadership sustainability framework, our learning organisation framework. However, we still wanted the Diploma of Leadership and Management for our participants. I also see, in looking in the details, Charmaine, that... Um the trainer was advised, and I'd like to quote this, you're not delivering to a normal group. You've actually got to allow time for yarning to unpack it, uh, to sit back and listen, not just keep wanting to teach what's on your agenda. Uh, you need to listen to what's going on in the room. You're there to map nicely to the eight ways of learning in the Aboriginal way. And if you as a facilitator can step back in that space, there'll be learning being shared. But it might not be aligned to how you want to run your run sheet or your session plan. Now, I've got to ask, did that add a challenge in trying to find the right training provider? Yes, it did. So, um, as you know as well before, uh, we are, as employers, looking for bespoke in a lot of um RTOs, registered training organisations, have their agenda, they have their set timetable, they have their assessments they must do and they have their observations and you must do it this way, this way, in this very linear fashion. However, we're asking for holistic sit and listen, watch what's being um, observed in the room, listen carefully, like level three listening, you know, real solid listening, and you as the trainer will get your observation checklist completed by yarning listening, observing, and incorporating um, our policies within Murrumbidgee Local Health District and New South Wales Health, and you'll find we can co-facilitate together and align it to your, we were calling them tick boxes that the RTO needed. Not, RTO is open. Not every RTO, Steve, is open to do it that way. I can't go any further without turning to Jeff here, because Jeff, you're the trainer in this discussion. What were your recollections of the training project? Well, thanks, Steve. Um, I must say, when I was asked to undertake the project, I really was, you know, that sort of um, railway kind of um, taking a railway training approach. Um, and I was going to deliver the training, you know, the way everyone gets their TAE, which means you follow a session plan. Um, and we have a, a workbook, which everyone, you know, gets and has to complete. Um, so initially, that was the, the the approach. It didn't take a real lot of time before we worked out that wasn't working. So thankfully, um, through like Shemaine and then previously Troy, we sat down, had a conversation and said, this is the way this needs to work. It's also important to point out that we were, we were sort of doing this 
in the middle of COVID and you're talking about the health system and you're talking about um, highly trained professionals, understaffed, overworked. So we started off by doing this, you know, or trying to do this virtually. And I, I don't think it got any, I didn't get real traction. So we then said, okay, um, enough of this virtual stuff. Let's do this face-to-face. That's when the learning curve really started about the, the yarning, listening to these men and women, these professionals talk about how they learn, uh, sharing stories, experiences, and real-life experiences. Um, and then it all fell into place. So if you if you want to apply the, you know, shall, shall we say, the stock standard approach, um, I don't think we, I don't think we'd be having this conversation today. Well, well Jeff, the the model here is reciprocal learning or two way learning, a, in which it's important for you as the trainer not only to listen to the room but also to be vulnerable, which those of us who stand in the front of groups aren't often asked to do. How did that affect you? And to close the loop on the two way learning, what did you learn from the experience? Well, I mean. Quite seriously, I, I probably learned as much from the guys as you know, as I try to you know, deliver to them. You talk about vulnerability. I can recall back right to the start of this. We kind of all exposed ourselves. Said, okay, none of us know everything. Let's talk about scenarios, and we talked a lot and confidentially about scenarios that are happening in the guys' workplaces, all those kind of things. And I think the trust and respect grew over time and to where we are now. When we go to training now, it's we're all prepared to have a conversation, open up, be frank and honest with each other. And boy, we have some open and honest discussions. And it's a great relationship. It's one which I, I value enormously. Were there tears along the way in this? I imagine when humans get emotion get vulnerable, emotions closely aligned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, men and women alike, we all, we all share the tear. Charmaine, when you look back on it, what are some of the, the moments, uh, the milestones during this journey, this partnership? I think I'll probably go threefold. So number one, the co-design approach, um, and then working with us, not for us, from the RTO perspective. But um, the leadership skills application to really operationalize it is the, the key success factor for us. And, you know, that, that's witnessed by, and then you'll hear from Ange later on, how the leadership languages has changed. And we're having, our, we call it reflection yarns at the start of the um, sessions. You can actually hear the language being applied. You can hear them using their coaching techniques. Everything that we've grown from leadership capability over the duration of the workshops and the program, you see it and hear it unfolding in the participants now, which is, I call it, a very proud mama moment. Um, And it's going from strength to strength. Looking back on the process, in hindsight, what could have helped it go better? I would have liked... um to be, have been more involved from the outset, you know, because I think we would have we would have established some of the foundations and the cornerstones of what we're going to try and do, as opposed to sort of turn up and then we and when we struggled for you know the first month or two, um, try to sort of work each other out. Um, I, I guess I, as the trainer, didn't have an appreciation of what. Um, um, what Shemaine and was looking for, I didn't have a full appreciation of what the um, of what the uh, what our students were you know, were looking for as well. So, I think involving the trainer earlier would have been would have been beneficial to do that. So it um, um, 
Because I also think that it would have given us a little bit um, more flexibility to, as to some of the some of the materials that we could have brought into the the training and been prepared just a little earlier than what we than what we were. So it's, uh, mm. involving the trainer earlier, which doesn't doesn't happen a lot in RTO land. You, know, you kind of get the the project to do, and then you you start, and you you're kind of always sort of you know, playing a bit of catch up in the early stages of it. Yeah, Charmaine, from your perspective. I probably mirror that too. And also for us, it was finding the RTO. So we reached out to our, our colleagues at Training Services New South Wales here to find the RTO that would be flexible and um, do a bespoke program for us and meet our needs in the first instance, as well as um, come under the funding model as well. So we used Training Services that way. And it would have been nice to have a yarn and a sit down in a planning session with the RTO as well. But we'd already done that beforehand and created our, our program, which we actually call Gindam and Dine, by the way, which is um, leadership in Wiradjuri language, which covers a lot of the, the Riverina and the Murrumbidgee. So the, um, the Aboriginal leadership program's name is Gindam and Dine. Hmm. Jeff referenced the fact that the people who were being trained were in the medical realm where everyone is you know, under a lot of work pressure all the time. And I'll just mention that, Angela, you're in the middle of a busy day today, so thank you for making some time for this chat. Um, you actually experienced uh, the result of this RTO employer partnership in the training. How, yeah, yep. how would you describe the experience? And also, while you're answering that, how does it compare to any other training that you've undertaken? Yeah. So, the, I my expectations have exceeded what my um, what the outcome was going to be. I had no idea about the potential growth that I was going to have professionally. So, I'm a registered nurse, and I, in our capabilities, they ask us to develop leadership. Um, along the way in the last 18 months professionally um, I've received recognition at a state level for um, the patient-centred and value-based care that I have um, have achieved purely based on learning um, the learnings from the modules that I've shut down with um, Charmaine and Jeff um, uh, over the last 18 months yeah so we we, we catch up once a month um, have a bit of a yarn I never realised um, until now that sitting back is Charmaine taking all these notes and actually realising what our capabilities are and individually able to articulate skills and capabilities that we do have. So I suppose that's where it's compar comparatively different. So the expectation is we work through our modules together, but individually they're able to pull apart our conversations and document um, and reflect back on that to um, meet the needs of the the, like the ticker boxes or um, the assessment criterias, but then we still come together and then do our workbooks so that we've looked through um, all of the required learnings, but also make sure that that's linked to work. And it's actually realistic. It's skills that are relevant to the experiences that we are facing on the floor. Um, the other thing that's really good is that it's time appropriate. Um, it's supported by the district so that we're able to do it in our in our work time. Um, and I don't feel that I've spent a lot of time individually hands-on on the books, maybe an hour or two a week or so that I need to go over and read over some of the stuff to make sure that I'm, I'm keeping up with the learnings that I need to learn about for myself. Um, but I find that I'm drawing back off the, the information that from the modules that um, Jeff has given to us to learn about on the journey. It's and you know just sitting around having a yarn. Initially, um, with COVID coming through, that was a really big roadblock 
to, I suppose, for Aboriginal people, we like to know each other. We like to have that bond. We like to know where um, we sit with each other. Like um, you have the opportunity to say, oh, where's your mob from? And then there's able to bring those links together and we then establish our kinship and our connection through that way. And um, I think that was kind of missed at the start and I think that may be um, something that in future now that COVID's moved away, thankfully, um, that's probably a really big opportunity. So when you know we, when you initially start the program, it'd be nice to see us coming together and having that um, team building, I was suppose you would call it, so that we can come together because we're all across the district. The districts is thousands of k's apart from each other, so it's hard to try and build those relationships um, in our individual space. I'm a nurse. There's a, um, mental health workers. There's allied health workers. So it's a it's a rather large pool of um, workforce that are coming together. So we understand each other where we all sit because we all work interprofessionally. Um, yeah, but I think I, I I really can't tell you it far exceeds any learning environment that I've been in. To be honest, I like the way you mentioned that. Well, it's kind of like team building that that first component, team building. Uh, seems like a sterile concept outside of this grassroots way that it was undertaken. But while you're here, and while Jeff has been happy to be vulnerable, can you remember when you first had him join the group and any thoughts that went through your mind as you watched this trainer learn to adapt in real time? Oh, yeah. Be kind, and <laughs> I haven't thought about the words to put it, but he looked um, like a like a new kid on the block, really. Like he, he looked he he looked nervous. Um, I could feel I, I could feel that he was nervous, and, and I could I could sense that we we were all trying to work out what is this program actually about. Um, and before we had all come together, we'd sat down and done our strengths and strengths and weaknesses. Um, what is that one called? Clifton uh, model. So we've done this over here a bit ad hoc and then we've come together. So we're all kind of thinking over there and then we come together with Jeff and then we were like, okay, well, what are we doing? And then so we kind of, because we are used to learning in that environment where we sit there and look at the teacher and then fiddle in the back and try and hide when we get asked a question. Um, and, but, but over time, you know, we, we slowly built a, a friendship up and, and the communication line started to open up and the journey began and it's been fantastic. Jeff, just to round off with you here at this point, it must be heartening to hear the way Andrew's talking about the enduring value of what's been learned still being drawn from uh, to this day. You couldn't write a book about this. It's um, the the way we started. And Andrew was right. I mean, I had a I had an idea in my mind, um, uh, and I truthfully I thought I was walking into you know sort of and I say I'm like non professionals. All of a sudden, I'm fine. I'm working out with registered nurses, people in, working in cardiac care, mental health professionals, and so I was kind of like a fish out of water. And uh, so, yeah, was I nervous? You bet your life I was. <laughs> um, but but then you know we, we kind of we got on a roll, and um, and we. I think one of the things, and now I'll, I'll embarrass Ange, um, the, we, as a group, we had to undertake a project. And so we, we sat around down in the, at the hospital and we were brainstorming what this project was going to look like. And it, and it came up to be, um, it was given a nickname called the care chair, but it was the correct name is chair-based services. 
And um, and it just it grew from there. And I think what that did to us, Steve, is that we we all kind of all re- recognise that we're we're all in this together. And so we we kind of shared it, and then it grew. And um, and Ange, you know, exhibited some great leadership capabilities. I mean, she was the project lead on it. Um, but uh, in all good, true leadership things, you know, other people sort of stepped up and took the lead. And, you know, Shemaine was instrumental in sort of, you know, keeping things, you know, you know compact and together and, you know, distributing stuff. So um, all of a sudden this, 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 whole, uh, this whole thing uh, took shape and took place. And so once we sort of got into the flow of things, because we all had, you know, the old infamous skin in the game, mm. so we all had something to contribute and we were all looking for something to get out of it from yeah. an RTS perspective getting on a completion but yeah. and for these guys to getting and and then thankfully I was able to sort of bring along some some other materials which I don't think is covered in um, a lot of the the resource material so we can sort of share that around and talk about how can you put it into practice so um, I think I think we kind of threw away the rule book and um, uh, or or rather etched out a deeper approach to the rule book, I suppose, is another way of saying it. Um, Tina, I'd like to turn to you because you're the consultant who undertook the interviews for all six case studies in the Good Practice Guide. Um, what are some of the highlights and the insights that you picked up from some of the other case studies? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So, um, yeah, I think what was interesting that was uh, yeah the case studies are across all different industries. So we've as well as this healthcare one, we've got a meatworks, we've got a food manufacturer, we've got a bicycle shop, um, we've got a construction company, and we've got a disability care provider. And and in all those case studies, they're, they're so very different. But highlighting how how important it is to have those good quality trainers and assessors in place and how we have good quality trainers and assessors available and working out there. Um, and and not only their like industry skills and their understanding of the industry and their understanding of the training content, but I think what really stood out amongst those uh, trainers and assessors was that were they they're ex- exceptional communicators. Um, and so you know what you're talking about today, with with Jeff and his his um his willingness to be vulnerable, that's about deep listening and really good communication. Um, so yeah, so having that deep communication uh, with the the employer and the learners, I think is is a highlight that that there are those skills out there and how important they are in those partnerships. So the partnerships, regardless of whether we had large employers, small employers, medium, and same with RTOs, and it's not like a one size fits all. So in this case, we have very small. RTO with a large employer, but we also had small with small and large with large. Um, so there's not like one size fits all, and it's more about being able to build that relationship. And they build them in different ways. So, for example, in the Meatworks case study, it's a very large provider, and large providers can be very complex organisations. And they have a one a one point of contact there, which is a staff member. Uh, who doesn't deliver any of the training and assessment themselves, but they are responsible for the managing of the relationship with that employer. And they also help shield the employer from the complexity of that RTO and they navigate the RTO on behalf of that employer 
with a small-to-small relationship, like in the bicycle shop one, you have the owner of the RTO doing that task, but also doing training and assessment as well. So we have different models. And it's not that one point of contact is the key thing because we have another one where there are three points of contact, but that focus on the employer and having people at the RTO that are responsible for managing the relationship and really um, customising the, the service to meet the employer's needs. So there's a lot to be gained from all of the, the, the case studies. I should hasten to add, we're just focusing on one because we've got the live participants here to talk about. And on that note, I want to come back to you, Charmaine, because uh, Ange mentioned how she's continually dipping back into the resources of those modules in an ongoing way. But the report highlights that the evolution of partnerships from the initial connections to the long term is important. How do you think um, RTOs and employers can work together to make sure that longevity of a partnership actually happens? I think we might come back to the probably all the three C's that have been mentioned already is connection, collaboration and communication. And the collaboration and um, working together is the most important in finding um the RTOs out there for us, again, would um, my advice for employers looking is uh, use training services because one, that they can actually go down a funding stream for you, but two, they can go, have you tried this, this, this and this. So they were key instrumental for us to find in the right RTO in the first instance. And then communication uh, with listening mm-hmm. and also really listening to the employer of how are you actually going to operationalize this training with the application on the job afterwards? How does it fit into your strategic goals? How does it fit into where the organization go? And how does it fit into the frameworks in your capabilities of how you do things around here, basically? So connection, collaboration, communication with my three C's. Love it. And and Jeff, I note from the com- uh, customer service section of the report, it talks about the benefits of uh, the, the on-site training delivery and customization. That was a big thing. H- how can an RTO actually strike a balance between the, the level of customization that you offered with that competing balance of still needing to run an efficient training service? Thankfully, Tony Lane from TME, you know, it's kind of given me a bit of a, a loose rein to sort of do this. But um, rather than just take the the resources and rely solely on the resources, um, I've been I've been allowed to sort of you know um, I guess you know add other stuff which I think brings value to the to the training because I think the diploma of management as it was previously focused very much on management. Now it's the diploma of leadership and management, but it hasn't really embedded a lot of leadership material, leadership content within the resources. So with that, you know, customer focus in mind and, and what, you know, um, Shemaine everyone was trying to achieve down in Wagga was to, you know, bring, you know, put the, the leadership, um, bring that to the forefront and how do we tie the, the leadership um, and, and the management into the, the day-to-day roles of Ange and all the other, you know, fabulous people that we've been working with. So um, allowing us the flexibility to um, to do that is a huge plus. You know, and I think you need to bear in mind that you know, there are some 
RTOs, and it's not being disrespectful to other RTOs, but um, they don't want you to do that. They want you to basically turn up, deliver, walk out, and that's it. I think if you're going to be successful, you've got to be able to, you know, to be able to adapt, um, not just the resources, but also adapt as the trainer, um, and as we've been sort of talking about, to to be able to sort of, you know, you know uh, sit back and listen, because a lot of a lot of trainers like to hear our just like to hear our own voices. So to be able to sort of sit back and and listen and you know yarn and unpack. When we get into a room now, we're we're probably more mates than we are from a, as trainers and students and things. So, and I think that builds you know to the longevity of the relationship. I'm getting a great sense of the theme of yarn and unpack running a lot through here as part of the DNA of what makes a successful partnership. And this is probably a good time to yarn and unpack by going around the table. And I'll start with you because I know you also have ward duties that you're responsible for at the moment. What I'd love you to reflect on is for any potential RTO and employers out there who are on the verge of forging a relationship to undertake training, what, what would you like to say to them? What, what words of encouragement or, or uh, caution would you like to share as they look at that into their future? Definitely not caution. I de- definitely get amongst it. It's It's been probably the best training opportunity that I've had. in, And I've done lots of courses, um, bachelors. I've done a couple of grad certs. I've done, I've done lots of tickets. Um, and I'd have to say this has to be one of the best. I think the thing that as a... Um, as a, a workplace, what you need to do is sit down. What is it that you want from your employee? What is it you want them to do? And then tailor your training towards that, as opposed to keeping it structured and focused in an, a, in a siloed approach. You need to open it up a little bit and have, as, as everyone's been saying today, is talking to each other. What is what is the what can the RTO provide, and what can the, what does the workplace really need? What do we need? What's going to improve the workplace and, the, and uh, increase workplace satisfaction, improve culture, build leadership over management? Um, I think the, the thing to think about, get, get amongst it. <laughs> and having um, the right people in the job too, I don't think it would have been as successful without the right training um, providers and that being Jeff and Charmaine. I think they've both done a fantastic job in um reading the room at the start and working out how to um, redefine how the project was going to work out or how the diploma was going to work out. Wow. Yet another little tick for those people who uh, understand the value of so-called soft skills. You mentioned being able to read the room. That's part of what seems to have been at the heart of success here. Charmaine, your thoughts for other potential RTO employer partnerships? and piggyback off Angela's last comment about reading the room and evolving and making it organic because as we unfold the topics, whether it's project management or ER or performance appraisal, then I'll bring in from the, the local facilitation point of view, now everybody go and find our performance review policy, now go and find this, now go and do that, let's all do it together. Now let's create a smart goal because it's now goal cycle, let's do it together. So everything we're doing is purposeful like I said before, operationalised and in, in real time of what we're doing in the organisation. Tina, you're in a unique situation, having been interviewing people within six different uh, situations. What, what would you want to put out there for uh, people to consider? I think the successful RTO employer partnerships, um, the, a, a key theme running through them was that the RTO focused on building the relationship 
rather than just a basic business transaction. Sure, it is a business transaction um, with the RTO selling a service to the employer and the employer purchasing that service, but it is so much more than that. And with, with that partnership come so many more benefits and you can hear it in the way that Charmaine and Ange and Jeff are engaging in this conversation. There are tangibles and intangible benefits that are long-lasting long and RTOs that can focus on that, that the long-term building of the relationship, focusing on meeting the employer's need, that deep listening, not only once, but a continuous process of deep listening and adapting and being flexible, um, yeah, which is about the relationship, I think are going to have success. Tina, you just helped a coin drop for me. It seems that this is not so much about the letter of the process, but the spirit of the process. Jeff, your thoughts for any future entities engaging in a partnership? Well, I, th I think, you know, I think it's also been covered fairly well as well, but I think, you know, being flexible and being adaptable. I mean, there's uh, nothing's a one size, one size fits all. And and I think from uh, from an RTO perspective, and I, again, I'm sort of grateful for the, uh, I guess, the lateral thinking of TME, but a lot of RTOs don't want to sort of, you know, go out of their home base. I, th I think you've, you've got to be flexible and go, you know, to the employer. You know, we can't rely on, I mean, technology is technology, but you can't rely on technology to keep on delivering things remotely. You've, you've got to be there, and particularly in this case, you've got to be there um, with with the learners and participating and understanding, and, and that's where this yarning and unpacking stuff comes from. But um, being flexible, because I don't live in Riverina, I live about five hours away, and uh, but it's it's a it's it's a treat to go down and work with with everyone down there. So being adaptable, and and I think training has to change per se. You, know, you, you just don't deliver out of a workbook anymore. I mean, you've got to be prepared to sort of make changes, be adaptable, and um, and bring new new ideas and thinking to the table that are relevant to the. Um, to the group and the, and the particular subject. Yeah. Michelle, here we are. We've together been watching all these players uh, refer to their stories coming up out of the research that you've overseen at NCVR. What would you draw to people's attention who might be about to embark into this sort of partnership? Well, before I get on to that, Steve, yeah, I just want to reflect on that. Hasn't it been a wonderful conversation? And just to, to see the words on our pages come to life. And so thank you to Charmaine, Jeff and Angie, Tina. It's, it's been so um, wonderful to have you and to listen to you today. So look, at the very least, with our good practice guide, I'd hope that providers use it to really reflect on how well any relationship they have with an employer it might be really quite at a rudimentary level, might be really well developed but really reflect about how well that relationship is working and to think about what aspects of how they do business could be tweaked, could be improved, modified to better suit the needs of the employer. You know, and we're hearing one example today, um, but the Good Practice Guide is is drawing upon um, all of the six case studies and it, it provides some great examples of what those four key elements, which we spoke about right at the very beginning of our conversation, so the quality training service delivery, being customer focused, working together, and that relationship um, development. The Good Practice Guide, it, it, it brings 
all of these elements together, examples from the case studies of what these look like in practice. And what I hope, um, I hope it prompts training providers, and I'm just going to repeat everything that everybody said, but I really hope it prompts training providers to have truly earnest conversations with employers about ways to strengthen the collaboration, ways to learn from each other, to really better each other. Because in doing so, and Tina's mentioned this, by doing this, you're going to move from that purely business, that transactional type relationship to one that is dynamic. It's longer term and it brings with it really quite substantial benefits individual growth benefits, but also, let's be honest, some nice business benefits too. And I think as Ange says, just get amongst it. And I think this is a lovely counterpoint to the way the world seems to be splintering into digits and automation and AI. Amid all of that, there can still be humans engaged in such a profound and meaningful endeavour. So thank you, everyone, for taking part. Michelle, where can people get access to this guide? So the guide and the accompanying report will be available from NCVR's website, so ncver.edu.au. On that note, thank you again for being part, everybody, of Vocational Voices. Thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVR on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Employment and Workplace Relations. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.